0: Passage. I have the privilege and fun of speaking about it. I prepared some some note sheets for you. If you haven't got one, there's some here. Pop up your hand if you haven't got one or if you need a pen. Can someone intelligent who can see hands raised come up and help me with this? There's lots of intelligent folks. There's more down the back. You don't know. This is just to help and gives me a bonus. While, while that's happening, let me welcome everybody here for this evening, if you're new. Um, if you are new, in particular, there's a yellow sheet that's in your folder. Please fill that in and drop it in the information box so that we can connect with you. Um, if you're not new, you're welcome as well. But please make sure that you catch up with everybody during at the end of the service. And I'm hoping at the end of this service that you won't just talk to them about their week. You won't ask them the normal questions, but you'll actually focus in and ask them some questions about what's been said. Ask them to talk about it with you, to dialogue. It shouldn't end at the end of the service or at the end of the communion. So when you're having tea and coffee and you're having that wonderful communication that happens in community, please make sure that you talk about Jesus as we do that because in some ways that's a big part about what this passage is about. I think most people have got that now. Let's pray and then we'll have a look at this passage which has troubled Christians I think, ever since it was written. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it is to us, a communication from you. It tells us about Jesus and it helps us to live in a way that pleases you, to think in a way that pleases you, to speak in a way that brings you glory. Father, we thank you that those of us who know you, who are committed to Christ, who have received him and are forgiven of our sin, that we've gone from being slaves to being children, that we have your spirit who lives within us, who not only guides us but helps us to understand things that you want to communicate to us. And Father, we pray that this evening you might communicate to us more of your truth, that we, even though we've heard it before might be challenged in such a way as to live lives where our attention, day by day, moment by moment, is focused on Christ Jesus. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First page doesn't much count. That's just a boat. If you haven't been able to work that out, because it's talking about not drifting, and I figured boats. And I've got a story about Sylvia and I on a boat a little bit later on that'll hopefully help us to understand this a little bit more. And most of what we're talking about this morning comes from that first sentence of Hebrews chapter 2, the first of the five warning passages that are in the book of Hebrews. What you remember from the last two weeks is this wonderful expression by the writer of the Hebrews about how great Jesus is. The communication of God to us in all of its fullness, we see in Christ Jesus. Not just him as a person being all of God, but the whole message that he brings to us about God's love and salvation and redemption. He's now seated at the right hand of God. That whole picture is you've got this comparison between angels and Christ. Because in the mind of the the people who are being written to, they were struggling a little bit there and, and were at times thinking that the message that they had already received was of greater value or was pushing them in a different direction. I don't remember if you remember two weeks ago, we said that one of the confusions that was in the early church was how Hebrew are we, how Israelite is our faith and how does that all mix in with the Christian teaching and the freedom that we have in christ jesus and, and, and how does that all happen and paul answers that in a particularly western way and the writer of the hebrews answers that in a particularly eastern way and he just says jesus is more superior the angels the prophets they sent us a message from god and yet we have this message who is god himself spoken by god christ jesus the angels were messengers but jesus is son he's heir He owns all things. The angels were created. Jesus was the creator who came and gave us this message. The angels are servants and ministers of God. Jesus is Lord and God. The angels came and they were to serve those of us who inherited salvation. The scriptures teach that. And yet Jesus is the one who provides for us salvation. And the writer says, if you take all of that out there, and that's in your thinking, Jesus is number one, that means something. And we have these four verses where he says, in other words, what difference that's supposed to make in our life. Now, I don't think there's anyone here who would say, we disagree with chapter one. We affirm the truths of scripture. We hold fast to those and we say, yeah, that makes sense to us. We're not saying that the message that God communicated to angels is not true. We're just saying that which is through Christ Jesus is even greater. It's more full. It's complete. We agree with that. And now the writer to the Hebrews says, okay, that means something. That's supposed to be carried out in your everyday life. Because of the wonder, because of the majesty... Because of the supremacy of Christ, we must do something. Now anyone who's read this passage before, chapter 2, 1, 4, and all of the rest of the warning passages, there's this great dilemma within so many people who read the passage or, or who write about them, say who is the we that it's talking to here? Who are the people have to take notice of this because it talks about drifting away from Christ. It talks about a judgment which is worse than the judgment of rejecting the law that came through angels. Who is the we that it's talking to? So over on the right hand of the inside page there, I've listed all the we and us's, not all of them, but just some of the major we and us's in the book of Hebrews to say, who is this written to? And it's going to take just a moment or two to read it all out to you and I hope it focuses in, on exactly who the we is that's being talked to. In chapter 3, verse 1, the writer of the Hebrew says, Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling. He goes on, we are his house if we hold fast. We have come to share in Christ if we hold to the end. For good news came to us, we who have believed, Chapter 6, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We who have fled for refuge, we have this sure and steadfast anchor. We draw near to God. We have a high priest. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. Let us consider how to stir one another up. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. By faith we understand, since God had provided something better for us. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Equip you, that he might equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I know if you put all of that together, this is not a comment, this is not a warning, this is not a passage which is aimed at people who are not believers. It's not saying, look, you people, if you're not going to pay attention to Christ and you're going to reject him, you're not going to come to him, understand that you are going to receive a punishment. Now, that is true. Those people who don't come and who are not found in Christ Jesus, who don't partake in all that Jesus has done, they are judged and they do receive condemnation and damnation because they haven't availed themselves of that which is a free offer of God's. But this passage is to we. It's to us. And if we read all of those things it's not just to those people who are backslidden we kind of think that this passage is to you know those people who are kind of shifted away and they're not following their faith maybe they come to church every now and then or we see them in morally compromising situations it's focused at them but if we look at to whom the writer of the Hebrews is writing He's talking about people who are sharing in the faith, who have Christ as the high priest, who are attaining things, who are growing, who are participating. And he says then to us, to all of us, if we're followers of Christ, we therefore must do something because of the message that we have from Christ Jesus. I know often when I read the warning passages, I kind of think, safe. It's not me. But this command, this direction is to us. And so let me challenge you. What he is saying here is something that you need to listen to. If you're a Christian, you specifically need to listen to it because it's aimed at you. If you're not Yet a Christian realize that this is God's statement to those people who already follow him. If you don't already follow him, then your judgment is already assured and you need to turn and come to him. And we're going to remember a little bit later communion as we remember all that Jesus did on the cross. And if you have yet to accept what Jesus has done, then as we go through this service, think through seriously, where do I stand in relation to Christ? So therefore, we, we people who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the next word is the word must. I love the word must, particularly as a parent. You must do this. I hated it as a child. You must do this. I always wish it was kept out of sentences. I like a word like ought. Ought's a good word. Ought means I have a little bit of say in the matter. See, when my mum used to come to me and say, you ought to make your bed, that was a loophole. I accepted the fact I ought to make my bed. That was a given. But ought meant, don't have to. When she used to come and it was usually with a different tone and said, you must make your bed. That was just that little bit stronger. And the writer of the Hebrews here is giving a very firm command. He's pretty much saying there's no getting out of this one, guys. He kind of gives the thing, that is, if you want to follow Jesus, if you don't want to follow Jesus, then you're not doing this anyways. And it's not a, a big Thing for you or, or the whole thing about the message of christ isn't a big deal but if you want to follow jesus if you want to partake in all that christ has given to you then no options here guys you must do this and he, he gives a little bit of example in some of the later verses about how important this must is he says for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's saying this is how important it is. You must do it because if you think about it, that message which was true but wasn't complete, if you didn't listen to that message, think about the results of that, and then think about what's going to happen when you reject this greater message, this full message, this complete message. So what was this message from the angels that had proved reliable and which people had disobeyed in the past? And then there's going to be a couple of verses that come up and I want to read them through with you just to focus in on exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is thinking about here because there was this understanding that was in the New Testament times that we've kind of gotten a little bit away from. So back in Deuteronomy chapter 33, right at the beginning of that chapter, the first four verses, it's right towards the end of Moses' ministry and it says this. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with the myriad of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Surely it is you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down and from you receive instruction. The law that Moses gave us, the possession of the assembly of Jacob. And there's this idea that's coming through that the message that Moses gave on the mountain, the law, the law that that underpinned the whole of the Israelite nation, the Old Testament understanding of who God was, was mediated through angels. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is picking out, that's what we're talking about. But a couple more verses just to sort of rope this together. Stephen, when he is giving his explanation of his faith, and just before he dies, he says in Acts chapter 7, in verse 37, this is that Moses, who told the Israelites... God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. And later on in his speech, he says this in verse 53, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And even over in Galatians, when Paul's talking in chapter three, he says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying to the people, you really got to think about this. Think back over your Old Testament. Think back over the law that was given to Moses. Think about the law that came through the prophets and think what happened when people disobeyed. I just brought up a couple of examples and uh, do you remember Uzzah? Who remembers Uzzah? Who's a good Old Testament person? Pastor Darrell's waving. He remembers. You probably don't remember his name but do you remember the guy that reached out to save the ark? yeah? His name's Uzzah, in case you worried. The ark's wandering along. This is one of the holy... It's, like it's, it's, it's one of the things that marked the religion for the Israelite people. It had inside it the tablets and a few other things. And the people are carrying it wrongly, and it starts to topple. But God's law said, don't touch it. So what does Uzzah do? He just wants to save the ark from falling on the ground so he puts up his hand like a good guy to stop it falling what happens zap he's dead why because the law said don't touch it and he had motives to do the right thing you would think from what it says he wanted to stop it and he gets zapped i think of david who broke the law and his son died i think of uh, miriam All she did was complain against Moses and she ends up with leprosy. Well, you think of Moses himself, the most humble guy on all the earth. He just whacks a rock once, twice, when he shouldn't have and he's kept out of going into the promised land after all he had to put up with. And this is all supposed to flow back into the minds of the people who are hearing this letter to the Hebrews and they're supposed to say, God's law is holy. And if you broke his law, look what happened to you. That was a true revelation from God. And people who broke it, look what happened to them. And now we have a greater revelation. We have a message from Christ Jesus. And this is even better because it doesn't bring condemnation, which the law doesn't, we'll look at a few verses to say that in a moment. But we now have the revelation from God that has the opportunity to bring us life. It's so much greater. What's the consequence if we reject such a great salvation as that? Romans chapter three, nineteen to twenty says Now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law rather through the law we become conscious of sin. The purpose of the law that which was revealed by angels actually always brought condemnation and now we have a greater revelation that brings life so Paul goes on to say in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference for everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at this present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's he saying here? He's saying in the past the law was there and it condemned. But now, there's Jesus and he's brought justice. Justice to everyone. He has paid for your sin. He's paid the penalty of that. You now have an opportunity to stand righteous before God. This is the new message. And the writer to Hebrews says that old message, if you disobeyed it, you died. You were condemned. What's going to happen if you disobey God? This new message. Paul goes even further to try and explain this out, and he does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll be happy to know there's only a couple more verses, but we want to tie it all together. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this Now, if the ministry that brought death, which is the law, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory and if what was fading away came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts what's Paul saying same thing the writer of the hebrews saying you've got the old testament you got the law and the glory and the majesty and everything that it showed about god was so amazing but even in all of that it condemned you now you have the message of christ his death on a cross, his resurrection, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. God himself come to love us. We are now righteous in God's sight. That glory which never ends, his spirit comes and lives within us, that's the difference. If that, when you ignored it, when you rejected it, brought some destruction or some death or a punishment how much more will rejecting this do to you? And that's the emphasis of this word must. If that happened to Uzzah for touching the ark, you ignore Christ and everything he's done for you, what are the consequences of that? Well, that bothers me a little bit. I don't know if it bothers you. I look at that must and I think about the punishment that happened to people like Uzzah, and then I think of my life, and I know an enormous amount about what God wants me to do and what He wants me to live like. What are the consequences of ignoring that great salvation? That's the idea, I think, that the writer of the Hebrews wants us to begin to think about. Because, you know, I look at the New Testament and I notice that we're not just talking about condemnation and being thrown out, we're talking about the fact that God is just and he brings penalties upon his people now we'll get to a little bit more about what drifting away means a little bit later but just even if you think of people like ananias and sapphira they told a lie they misrepresented the truth in the early church and they're zapped they die i think of what paul has said one corinthians chapter 11 he's talking about communion it's one of the reasons i want to read this passage out He's talking about what happens as people who say we're followers of Christ Jesus come and they're sharing around the table in the wrong way. And he says this in chapter 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. First, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, if they just do it thoughtlessly, eats and drinks judgement on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a nice way of saying died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgement. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So we're not just talking about the sort of judgment that ends up with people being condemned to hell, but we're saying the judgment of God on those who ignore the great salvation that we have might be something along the lines of what Paul is talking about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But even earlier on in in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 5, he was talking about there was someone who was sinning immorally. And he has this to say in chapter 5, verse 3. Even though I am not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the lord so punishment doesn't mean that the person loses their salvation but even if i was to think to myself that the worst part of the punishment is going to be that i'm handed over to satan because i'm not doing what the writer of the hebrews is saying i should do and i might get saved but my life is going to go to the pits i'm going to be weak and sick and ill and my life's going to go through the toilet Then I need to begin to think through this process. How important is it to do what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? So, what does he tell us to do? What is the message for all of us if we look at that, this greater message, and the consequences of not following it? He says, pay closer attention. Pay closer attention. Keep your eyes focused. We're going to talk about what we have to pay closer attention to in a moment, but the the word closer attention is actually a nautical term, and it means to keep your course straight or tie up your anchor firm. And he says, this is what you, as people who recognize who Jesus is, what you have to do, you have to pay attention. And we can think of it, we'll go through it in a minute. Pay attention on Jesus. Pay attention on his word. Pay attention to the things we know about him. This great message of salvation, he says, you've got to pay attention to it. Now, it's not just a superlative. So, you know, it's this comparative word. It's not just pay, pay more attention or pay the most attention. In the Greek, it's pay the most, most, much, much closer attention that you possibly can. It's actually kind of having this idea that you have to be addicted to this. I don't know if you've ever met those people who are focused on computer games. Anyone ever seen anyone like that? Anyone ever been anyone like that? They're just kind of there. I do that every now and then when I'm watching a particular show and people walk in front of you and you kind of just, you don't even see them. You just pay attention to that thing. And this is the word. He says, What you need to do is pay closer attention to. Keep your course online. Don't deviate from it. That's what you need to do. And he didn't tell us what we need to pay close attention to. It's really easy to not pay attention. Yesterday, I was in a conversation with my wife who's lovely, (laughs) but at the same time as having this conversation, my computer was having problems, and so she was talking to me, but I was fixing my computer at the same time. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever been in that sort of situation, so that as she was talking, I was going, "Uh uh-huh, yep, that's right. Yes, dear. And while she carried on that conversation with an even tone, I could manage to concentrate on both things. Uh, probably poorly on both of them, but maybe a greater focus on my computer, which wasn't working very well, even though it was an Apple. But then the tone changed. The tone changed in the conversation that Sylvia was having with me. And I realised that it would be wise of me to pay much closer attention to Sylvia. What that meant was that I had to remove all focus of the computer. Why? Computers don't get upset with you. You get upset with them. They don't get a mad back. And to put all of my attention on Sylvia, to listen to what she was saying, to respond appropriately... That was wise of me. Pay much closer. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, pay much, much closer attention to Jesus. You need to be focused on him. You need to fix your course on Christ and his word and his teaching. You have to anchor yourself in it completely, without reservation, day in day out moment in moment out don't lose focus he then says to what it is we must pay attention but we've talked about this we talk about the greatness of jesus he's just talked about that in chapter one nothing else is allowed to take jesus place nothing else is allowed to take jesus place he is to be our focus whenever we're dealing with anything else he's the focus the fullness of his whole message is talked about here. That which he said and which is the people who heard from him have passed on from us. The wholeness of the great salvation that we have, that is to occupy your mind. The salvation that we've inherited, the scriptures that we have in front of us, this is to occupy our minds. Short break for a moment. Turn on to the back page down the bottom second half it says some serious get-together questions so i don't want pious answers here i want you to think a little bit i want you to think For question one i want you to just do on your own now briefly i'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to think about it. it says this use arrows to show the impact christ has on your life in the following areas this is an attempt to see how much of your focus is focused on jesus as you go through life, I've just put a few areas down there. Your entertainment, your relaxation, your relationships, the food you eat, the morals that you have, the conversations that you have, your work, your education, your family. I want you to just be honest with yourself. You don't share this with anyone just yet and we probably won't get it sharing with anybody because these are personal things. Draw an arrow at about how far your attention is focused on Jesus in all of these areas of your life you've got my example there about a third of the way if you don't draw an arrow at all you're pretty much saying duh jesus isn't in there at all why does jesus have anything to do with the food that i eat it doesn't make any sense at all all the way through to the end where everything is jesus everything when i'm doing this thing i'm focused on the lord jesus so i'm going to give you about two minutes i want you to go through draw some arrows you got pens sit down evaluate your life for a minute i going to take too long, but hopefully that's given you some sort of idea. I know that when I sat down and did that, and I looked at parts of my life, I knew there were areas of my life where I wasn't paying close attention to Jesus in all aspects of my life. That there wasn't that addiction to Christ in each area of my life as there needed to be. What's the problem if we don't? If we don't fix our eyes on this, if we don't fix our eyes on Christ, if we don't have our attention on course there, the writer of the Hebrews says, lest we drift away. He's not saying that it's a purposeful movement that we have away from Christ, but he's saying that if we don't pay that close attention... Again, another nautical term, we will drift away. On our honeymoon, Sylvia and I decided that uh, we would go boating in a catamaran. And the person who owned the catamaran at the resort that we were staying assured us that catamarans are really easy to drive. We were staying on an island. And he's right. Catamarans are really easy to drive if you're not heading anywhere. If you're just sailing, they're a piece of cake. So for about an hour, we had a blast because we weren't headed anywhere. We were just out having a sail, newly married couple. This was great. But if you actually want to get somewhere, like back to the island, and you're headed in a particular... You have to be so focused... And I must admit, from my experience, you're supposed to have some skills as well. It was really easy for that period of time, when we weren't headed anywhere, to just go through life. We were steering, we were having fun, we were laughing. But to get back to that island, which was a lot, lot smaller than when we left, couldn't get anywhere near it. We actually had to flag down a passing fishing boat who dragged us most of the way back and then forced us to swim the rest of the way for being silly enough to take out a boat without knowing what we were doing. And he dragged the catamaran back to the shop for us. Because, see, we weren't focused on the island all the time. We were just focused on doing our stuff until we finally turned around and realised that we could not get back there. I realised that what we probably should have done is kept our focus on the island all of the time and had our fun in such an area where we could get back to there. What the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, look, if you take your eyes off Jesus, there's so much happening in the world. Where other things come and they start to try and take the place of Christ in your life in a particular area, that you'll drift away. Note that this is a warning passage. He says, with danger, that we can drift away from Christ. And drifting brings punishment. And it's possible that drifting without correction on our part really shows that we're not really followers of Christ in the first place. Lots of people use this passage to try and answer the question, can I lose my salvation? That's never the point of what the writer here is trying to answer. What he's trying to do is exhort people who are followers of Christ to remain faithful. Because it's through perseverance that you show that your faith is real. And if you drift and can't get back, it's like the parable of the sower. And the seeds which are planted and because of the cares of the world and the sun and everything else, they shrivel up and die. They never took root. They showed themselves to be there, but they never were. And later on, as we get to the warning passages in Hebrews, he's going to come even stronger on this and saying you need to persevere. You can, sh- you can take great joy that Christ is your high priest and the one who saved you if you endure If you've shown that your heart really is his. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us is, keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, because if you don't, you might drift. And it's really hard to overcome drift. I don't know if you've ever been on the ferry on the Brisbane River, when they miss the pier. When they get it right, everything's cool. They kind of slide in and you think, man, this guy's good. But when they miss it by a little bit, they're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. No easy correction to get back. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying to us, look, keep your eyes focused on Jesus in every single area of your life because the danger of not Being with Christ starts from the discipline and ends up to being you never were his in the first place. How can we ignore so great a salvation as what we have in Christ Jesus? How do you notice that you're drifting? You see, it's hard to notice you're drifting when your eyes aren't on Jesus and you can't make the small corrections that you need to to stay on course. Or when the anchor rope starts to slip, if you're not focused on what you're anchored to, eventually it just lets go. And you can't get back. Pastor Al said in the sermon this morning that there came a time when God said to Eli, enough's enough. There is no sacrifice for the sin that you've done. You've rejected it so much. That's it. End of story. Right. The Hebrews is trying to get us to think about that and motivate us through this to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Turn the back page. You'll be. No, I only got fourteen ways that I think drifting can look like or feel like this was in part of my reading as I looked at what different people were saying what does it feel like to drift and as I read through these and I'll I'll talk them all out with you I noticed that there were times in my life when this had been my experience I had felt this happening so i'm encouraging you think through these things is this me is my life adrift how do i get back on course how do i get focused back on jesus because the salvation i have on him is greater than anything else that god could possibly communicate with me so 14 things no particular order number one how does what does drifting look like or feel like it's when your your sense of wonder is waning the writer of the hebrews in hebrews chapter one talks about the supremacy and the greatness of christ jesus we've sung about how fantastic jesus is and there comes a time when you're not focused on him and you're kind of like yeah hum, great story but it doesn't have that same sense of wonder and amazement about the greatness and wonder of jesus christ what does that say that says in some extent you're taking your eyes off him a little bit you're not looking as you should you're not seeing who he is you're not focused so the beginning of the drift might be my sense of wonder of christ is waning number two my awareness or the nearness that i have to god is history I don't feel him like I used to. I'm not aware of him like I was. I'm not close to him like I used to be. It's a sign that the intimacy that you had with God is a memory. Something you remember from your past, not from your present. What that says, it says you've drifted away. Those of you who are in a relationship with people know those times when you haven't kept focused in on it for a long enough period. And you don't seem to know the person anymore. Sure, they're your friend or they're your spouse or whatever, they're your child, they're your parent, but you haven't spent time with them. They're not close anymore. You have to sit down and have a coffee and a meal and a conversation to get back into that nearness. So if you think about your relationship with God and you think, my closeness to God, that's kind of, I remember what it was like when I first came to Christ i remember what it was like a year ago when god spoke to me in that way but that intimacy that i had with him that's that's a thing of the past All the writers of the hebrews would say you're drifting you've got to get your eyes your relationship your understanding you've got to get back into the word and focus back on christ number three c Your love and desire for God's word is not like what Psalm 119 says. It's not your delight. It's not your joy. It's not your focus. You read the scriptures, or you hear them read, you say, I really wish you'd read less Bible. Well, why do people get carried away with the Bible all the time? I've read it before. Why do they keep talking about this stuff? And it's not that first energy that you had when the scriptures were read and you want to know more about it and you just loved it and you desired to be in it and you wanted to focus on Christ all the time. Because the scriptures are the place where we find out what Jesus is like. We find out what Jesus wants us to live like. So that's the place that we go. And if we're not interested in going there, we're really taking our eyes off Jesus. Number four, if the realities of heaven and hell are distant and unreal to you, then your eyes are probably focused on the here and now, not on Jesus and everything that's ours in him. If you're not concerned about the people around you who are headed for hell, you're not looking forward to heaven, I haven't preached on heaven, I don't think, here um, the sec- you know, really yet. But I remember at the last church that I, I preached, when you talked about heaven, probably 20%, 25% of the people who walked out after the service to shake my hand said, not yet. I don't want Jesus to come back yet. And you think, alright, you've got loved ones who are going to hell or you've got loved ones who you haven't ever shared the gospel with and they go, I want to see my daughter married. Or I want to have children. Or I want to have a husband. And you think, all of that is greater than being with Jesus. And they say, no, 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 because I would ask them that. I'm fairly straightforward. No, 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 no. Jesus is most important, but I want that first. Your eyes are drifting. You're looking elsewhere. Heaven and hell are realities. Keep our eyes focused on all that Jesus has done and the impact of what he's done in our world. And if those realities are distant to you, then it could be that you're drifting away. Number five, I fall apart at the first sign of persecution or suffering. The first time someone questions me about my faith or I go through a difficult time, I fall to pieces. You see, if you're anchored in Jesus Christ, and your eyes are firmly fixed on him, that doesn't mean that you're not going to go through suffering and it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be trials and times when you really go through an agony of your soul. But you're not going to fall apart at the first sign of things. And if you find that that's what's happening, everything that comes up just sends you into a tizzy or sends you away from thinking about Jesus, then it's probably a fair bet that you've got your eyes off him. He's not an everyday constant in your life. Your intimacy is gone. Number six, F. It's possible that you're drifting if you're unaware of the pull of the flesh, the world and the devil. If you go through your week and you don't feel the spiritual battle around you, then it's probably true that your eyes aren't focused on Jesus. If your eyes are focused on Jesus, then you'll feel the drift because every little current that moves you out of the way, you'll know that that's not what Jesus wants you to be doing. And we've been told in Scripture that we're in a spiritual battle. So if you're not feeling the battle, then maybe you're not participating in it. That doesn't mean that you're going with every pull, it just means you're aware of that around you the subtlety of life within yourself, your own flesh, as it seeks to live for itself instead of for Jesus. The bombardment of the world through media, through advertisement, through just living here and the friends that we have and the things that are going on. Or the oppression as the devil seeks to draw our eyes away from Christ. If you don't go through a week being aware of some of that, it's possible your eyes aren't focused on Jesus and the writer of the Hebrew says focus your eyes back on him lest you drift. Gee. If prayer, Bible study, witnessing and church are a duty, not a delight. You ever had that? You got to go to church. I got to go to church. Got to go to church. I've been through those periods of time even seven or eight years ago going to a particular church with my children training them in the things of the Lord would rock up sit through the singing and when they went off to Sunday school I'd out the back door and go for a walk. I just didn't want to be there. For all sorts of reasons. Now Some of those reasons may or may not have been valid, but it wasn't a delight to be in church. It was a duty. I had to be there. Sometimes prayer gets to be like that. And it's not talking about the occasional times when we're under sort of that pressure that the the evil one gives to us or the world gives to us or just the time constraints of living. But if in general, prayer, Bible study, witnessing with our friends is something you feel you have to do, not what you want to do for this wonderful God that you serve. And it's possible you've taken your eyes off him. H. When communion is dull and preaching is boring. Now, sometimes preaching is just boring anyways. But if in general when you get together in communion and you're focused on the person of Christ and all he's done for you and you think, <sighs> That's just a dull event instead of I have this opportunity to remember Jesus and all he's done then it's possible he's no longer center of your vision when you're not interested in learning as the word is shared with you what God wants you to live like and be like and it's possible God talks to the most boring people I remember being at Bible college and uh, this one person had tried to share the gospel with their friend on numerous occasions and nothing had sunk in but they invited them along to an old test third year old testament lecture that they were having because this non-christian was staying with them and they sat through this old testament boring lecture and at the end of the lecture this person said wow isn't jesus amazing i want to become a christian the spirit of god talked to them through that i can't believe it i think i fell asleep but it's just the way that it is and if that's your experience week after week i love the singing or whatever but i don't want to hear the word of god or i don't want to share in communion then take a, a long look at whether or not you're drifting or not i If remembering what Jesus has done on the cross no longer emotionally moves me, intellectually, yes, but emotionally, I don't feel the joy and the happiness and the wonder of Christ Jesus anymore, then possibly you've taken your eyes off Christ, no longer looking at Him. You're allowing the world to shift and change your emotions. J. I've become autonomous and not dependent on other Christians if you can live your Christian life without other believers around you encouraging you focusing your mind on Christ Jesus helping you in discipleship keeping you accountable training you if you reckon you've got it all together I'm in a safe place and I'm going where I need to go I'm on autopilot then you're in danger of drifting because we've been put together in family to help each other to keep on target okay I have this idea that theology is no longer important or worse than theology not being important the study of God if it becomes an intellectual exercise for me. Then I'm in danger of drifting because I'm no longer seeing Christ as the one who saved my soul and whom I want to find out everything about. But he's just a science that I study along with everything else. Other people do their thing. They study butterflies or they go four-wheel driving or whatever it is that people do. Me, I go to church and learn about God. That's just my thing. Well, we're in danger of drifting. L, if I lack joy and gratitude for all that Jesus has done, you're in danger of drifting. If I am no longer growing in faith and hope and love. If you look back at six months ago and you look at yourself now and you say, Is my faith in God grown? Am I hoping and trusting more in all that Jesus is doing for me? Am I loving the people around me with the love of God more and Him more? If the answer to that is no, and you're pretty stagnant, then I think the scriptures are saying you're in danger of drifting. Because as people keep their eyes focused on Jesus, they move closer and closer towards Him. And they grow more and more. And lastly, and this is not an exhaustive list, but if I'm looking for something more, something outside of Christ and His Word, if I want more than just Jesus, then you're in danger of drifting. I want financial security. I want a great relationship. I'm not complete because I don't have these things. Then you're in danger of having taken your eyes off Christ and letting something else take his place. And the writer of the Hebrews says, where are we if we ignore our great salvation? What's going to happen to us? We're in danger of drifting We put ourselves under the hand of God's judgment and if we don't correct that and get back with our eyes focused on Jesus, we're in danger of drifting away completely because we never were anchored to Christ in the first place. You can't draw that line for someone else. But the writer of the Hebrews says to every single one of us, You've got to draw that line for yourself. Are you anchored in Christ or not? Just before we come and we share a time of communion together to remember what Christ has done, just look at those bottom two questions. Number two, how much of your Christian thinking considers the consequences of drifting? If I think back to my Christian life, very rarely has anyone said to me you know, you're in danger of moving away from Jesus. They've always said you can always come to Jesus. They've always said at every single moment you can come to Jesus and be forgiven, which is a true statement. But the writer of the Hebrews says, no, you've got to think about the consequences of moving away from Jesus. That should help you to keep your eyes focused on him. So I want you to think about yourself. How much of what your Christian thinking is like says, yeah, there's a danger. There's a danger for me, as someone who says they follow Jesus, of drifting away from Christ. How much of your Christian thinking? Have a little think about that for a moment. The third question is, do you know anyone who's drifting? Most of my comments here have been aimed at you. Are you drifting? But I want to think a little broader that, Do you know anyone else who's drifting? Do you know people, as you think through their Christian life, their walk with Jesus, and you know their eyes aren't focused on him? How serious does that hit your heart? Does that make you weep for them? Does that make you cry? Or do you say, as I've heard so many people say, that's their decision. That's between them and the Lord. And then the next part is, what are you going to do about it? If you do know that that's happening, what's your response going to be? Not just in your life to get your eyes focused back, but how are you going to help that other person and correct them to get their eyes back on Jesus? Those last two questions are what I would like you, after the service, as you're sharing in tea and coffee, to talk about with the people around you or the ones you're having coffee with. Talk about what and how often you think about this concept and secondly what are you going to do about those people whom you know who are drifting and how you can work and help them maybe get people to pray with you about specific people that you care about or if you feel that you're in danger of drifting away ask someone to come and to pray with you we're going to come to a time of communion One of the amazing things about communion is that we have this opportunity to examine ourselves and to get things straight with God. I never had an opportunity to get that silly catamaran back to the island. And I've never gone sailing again. I don't know that I want to learn because I don't know that I have the skills and every time I go on the water with Sylvia, she gets seasick. So it's not likely to happen. But if it was left up to me and I was to take a catamaran out tomorrow, I'd get lost again. I'm pretty certain of it. But when we take our eyes off Jesus and we come back to him and say, Lord, I want to put my eyes back focused on you. The amazing thing is it's not dependent on us. We have to take that step. We have to do the work. We have to keep focused and remain focused. But he's the one who anchors us. He's the one who sets the direction for us he puts his spirit within us to guide us so when we come to communion we have the opportunity if we have been drifting to refocus i think it's one of the reasons that the early church and christ command itself was to say do this every time you meet together focus your eyes back on me focus your eyes back on the message that i've brought focus your eyes back on the gospel that's yours the good news of salvation. We have that opportunity this evening. So we're going to come to a kind of communion moment. Let's just close this section in prayer. Lord God, it's a a terrible passage as we think about the fact that we who say we love you can even fool ourselves sometimes. But when we look at our lives and we see how you're no longer a part of it, we understand the great seriousness of not being focused on all that you've given to us. And some of us here in this room tonight are in danger of neglecting our great salvation. Some of us have moved so far away from keeping our eyes on Jesus that. We're not even sure how to get back. And Father, we know that you promise that you will draw us back to yourself. You will forgive us for our neglect and you will welcome us with open arms and give us the strength and the courage in your spirit to remain focused. Father, there are some in this room who in one area of the knife or another maybe it's in their morality maybe it's in their finances maybe it's in their marriage maybe it's just in the things they watch and the things they play with and in those areas they're in danger of being pulled away from you for a part of their lives Father help whatever it is in each of our lives that we will deal with it tonight that we won't allow it to continue and the drift to keep going on Father, there are some here who have over a long period of time kept their eyes firmly fixed on you. Father, we give thanks for their example. Father, we also pray that they too might be encouraged to remain focused to the very end. We have so many examples, even in scripture, of people who at the end have taken their eyes off Jesus. Father, may that never be true of us, I pray. Father, as we come to the time of communion, I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves. To confess our sin. To get right with you. And not to allow the world to shape our direction and our course. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.